The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we're back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but boy, we have, we have a definitely, definitely a great show lined up for everyone tonight. Genevieve, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you tonight? I'm really excited to have our guest. He had been on the show a, a while back. This was long overdue, definitely. Yeah, we, we spoke about Eyes Wide Shut, one of my all-time favorite movies, you know, because I have a morbid fascination with things. And uh, it's one of those movies that you feel like they're telling you more than they're letting on, right? Yeah, it, it's like in your face and you just want to know what Yeah, it's it just, is. you just don't know how it's to like translate. It's you know it's there. Yeah. You know it's there. It's just like, come on, guys. We just need to like peel back the layers here. Yeah, and I, I came across Jay's website where he has analyses on, on numerous films. And More than numerous. Yeah, yeah. to uh, say no. the least. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're lucky enough to get him on the show. And if you missed it, go check out our website, WOTRradio.com. We have the interview there. It was definitely, definitely a, a really cool interview. And Genevieve, without further ado, I will let you do the uh, the introduction. Tonight, um, we've got Jay Dyer on the show. He's a real gem in the world of all things conspiracy in Hollywood. His approach to analysis is interesting and fun, whilst always remaining thorough and mind-expanding, in my opinion. Jay has written on a myriad of topics and movies, with a select few of the most important themes and films being mentioned in his recently published Esoteric Hollywood, Sex, Cults, and Symbols in Film. And that's exactly what we'll be exploring tonight during our show. Um, and having focused on Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, Eyes Wide Shut, in our last interview, this time round we'll be delving into the depths of dark and murky Hollywood on a wider level, investigating exactly what the medium of film is trying to achieve and how it is doing so. Movies may be entertainment for the masses, but look a little further and we find a world of power, control and indoctrination. And Jay Dyer is here to elucidate some of this world for us tonight. We welcome Jay Dyer of Jay's Analysis onto the show. Jay, can you hear us okay? I can. How are you? We're doing great. We're doing great. Thank you so much for taking the time to be to be with us tonight and talk about your book, Esoteric Hollywood. Last time you were on the show... You mentioned that you were still finalizing the book a bit. And uh, now that it's out, what's the reception been like? I took a little stroll through Amazon and saw that the reviews are, are quite favorable. Yeah, I think I have 21. Uh, I have 20 five star reviews and one two star review. So uh, that's over 95 <laughs> percent. So that's that's pretty positive. I would say all the feedback that I've gotten personally is is great. People think that it's more of a textbook. It's almost like a kind of a total, you know, removal of the, uh, the veil. Actually, a lot of people are saying that. So, uh, that makes me happy. You know, it wasn't really a, about money per se. This is not the kind of book that you're going to make a whole lot of money from. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, I mean, certainly making a decent amount helps, but 
uh, it's the kind of book that, you know, I just really wanted to use to help people see through lies and deception and indoctrination. And I, and I think it does do that. And everybody seems to be responding as if that is the case. So, yeah, so I, I just wanted to always write about movies and thank God here it is. It finally, finally came into being. Yeah, no, and it's a really, really cool book. It's really well researched. There's a ton of footnotes, uh, the sidebars with uh, some very pertinent information. You give a lot of background, which I think it's key. You know, I have a lot of friends and sometimes we get into this topic and it's really hard for people to understand because unless you have all this information at hand, you know, they're going to look at you like you're a little bit crazy, but you really went to great lengths to make sure that this book is backed up. Did you find that to be difficult? Not really, just because I have always enjoyed researching and documenting. And, you know, if you do if you do an undergraduate in philosophy, you're going to have to do a lot of that anyway. So you're going to be writing hundreds of pages worth of research papers throughout your undergraduate period. And then as you do grad school, you're going to have to write even more, probably twice that. So, you know, having already done a whole bunch of writing in, in my college period, I was just sort of acclimated to doing it. And then I was just blogging and kind of on my own for fun mm -hmm. for a long time. So most of the book was already written before it went to print, uh, but it did require, you know, a good bit of going back and sort of revising and adding in um, new information, adding in all the footnotes. And then, all, as you mentioned, all the sidebars. So that was a very tedious process. Yes, it took a long time. It took Uh, several months actually to get it all into the form that it is now and it's not perfect there's there's some aspects of it that i wish were better but uh it, it's good enough i think for my sort of rookie debut outing book wise i'm happy with it and uh you know it's done it's done better than i expected i was i had no idea really what to expect and it's only been out officially i guess about a month so I'm very happy with all the reception and the sales and um, it's a labor of love, I guess. And you to see this kind of thing come together, it's it, it's very satisfying. I bet. I bet. I'm telling you, we we really enjoy reading the book. It was uh, it was really easy to read. And I mean, that obviously in a good way, I don't think the book is dumbed down in any way. But I think right. that the way that it's written and the way it walks you through The you way know, it flows. Yeah, the way it flows. It's, it definitely yeah. makes it really easy to read. But let me ask you this. What was the criteria for selecting which movies made it into the book? I, obviously, there's millions of films out there. How did you go about picking like, okay, this one definitely is going to make it. This one, not so much. Uh, it was pretty arbitrary, actually, in terms of just my own will. And I had to just kind of pick what movies I thought were significant and what directors I had to figure out how to organize it and how many there would be. I had to leave out quite a bit. There was so many that, that I'd already written and that I wanted to do that I that never made it into the book. So hopefully there will be a sequel, you know, given the success of the, the initial book. Um, but it was just kind of, I thought, well, the best way to organize an introduction or, or a part one of this kind of a thing would just be to pick maybe four or five seminal directors and, you know, the films of theirs that I had already pretty much dissected and watched, you know, countless times over, over the years, even growing up with some of the kids era stuff, seventies and eighties, like fantasy dystopia stuff. 
And, you know, part of it was stuff that I researched in my grad school era with uh, Ian Fleming and James Bond. So it was really just a decision uh, based on directors who were seminal and the works that were seminal and the ones that I felt like really had a lot of predictive programming or were in some way specifically pedagogically relevant to our, our modern day predictive programming, especially with, you know, transhumanism and um, AI and all that kind of stuff I, I felt was very important. And I mean, who can deny the influence of uh, Kubrick? I mean, right. you know, that's why he's the first uh, 80 or 90 pages of the book. So it's really just more, I guess, common sense criteria by which I or organized it. Gotcha. And there's a term used, and and I believe it's it's a term coined by Kenneth Anger in the book when referring mm-hmm. to the to the entertainment industry here in Southern California, specifically mm-hmm. Hollywood, of course. And that's uh, you know, he compares it to the Babylonian Empire. Could you elaborate a little bit about that? How is the entertainment industry seen in this way? Because a lot of people take it as a very harmless thing, right? You know, movies is the kind of thing you go with the family to the theater and enjoy it or, you know, whatever, stream it on Netflix. How can we explain to folks that maybe don't see the darker side of the entertainment industry, why it's referred to this Babylonian empire? Well, because I cite... At the beginning, a comparative religion scholar named Dudley Young, I cite his famous, it's kind of Carl Jungian tradition book, uh, Origins of the Sacred, the Ecstasies of Love and War. And I talk about how he says that the earliest gods were invoked by ritual act, and that would be through sacrificial dance uh, or plays, so the arts. And so from the earliest days of, I guess, where we would, drive our artistic tradition, you know, the Greek, Greek mythology, Greek theater. Uh, this goes back to this whole idea of uh, religious invocation. And so in the ancient medieval mind, theater was combined with the religious. And so I approached the whole thing from a religious standpoint. And I think that that's probably what was most surprising to people uh, that it's, a, it's approaching Hollywood from a religious and philosophical perspective. So it's not some kind of goofy fundamentalist Baptist type approach or anything stupid like that. It's more of a scholarly academic approach, but also a religious philosophical approach. And so I don't think anyone else does that in, in Mm -hmm. the same way that I do. I mean, you have websites out there that'll say, Oh, here's a, you know, all seeing eye in a movie. Therefore it's Illuminati or something like that, but they don't ever (laughs) approach it you know, looking at comparative religion or this or that yeah. sometimes in college circles or in maybe film magazines or film journals, you'll get that kind of approach. Roger Ebert will, will do that every now and then. But if you read a Roger Ebert approach to a film, even if he talks about symbolism, he's never going to talk about cults or the occult or, you know, history or any of that kind of stuff. He's just going to keep it on kind of that college professor level type of thing. So I've always felt that that was very limiting. And I took a bunch of, film classes in college and we would get into this kind of stuff and I'd always be bringing up, you know, the religious aspects of a film or the occult aspects and, or the, even the conspiratorial aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Like I remember one time we had a class on Oliver Stone's Nixon and we were talking about the scene where Robert McNamara's eyes turned black and he starts reciting uh, William Butler Yeats's poem about the beast. And I'm like, well, this is a reference to Crowleyanism. <laughs> and the wow. professor's like, 
oh, what are you talking about? What is that? What, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just like, well, obviously you don't know what I'm talking about, but I know what I'm talking about. So I always felt like, you know, ever since that class, it was probably 10 years ago when I had that class, that I could, you know, this kind of stuff could actually be a book one day. And yeah. lo and behold, 10 years later, it's a book. So what is Hollywood Babylon? Well, this is this older idea. I'm kind of loosely building on the Kenneth Anger approach. And Anger, of course, was a vocal Crowleyan, uh, you know, Luciferian when he talked about Hollywood as this sort of dark empire, this this pagan Babylonian empire. And that's roughly what David Lynch is talking about in his very bizarre, very surrealist, very abstract film, Inland Empire. So that's what I started out with, was talking about these parallels and and how it, it is kind of a religion, Hollywood, Hollywoodism. Uh, whether we acknowledge it consciously or not, the mm-hmm. public views it that way, and they treat it the same way that the average Greek citizen you know, two, 3,000 years ago would have treated the plays of uh, Sophocles or something. Yeah. Right. Uh, Antigone, right. I mean, these are full of the gods and all this kind of stuff or Homer or Odysseus or whatever. So that's what I went into. You know, the first chapter was just kind of comparing the Kenneth Anger approach and his books dated. I mean, nobody even cares about WC Fields or any of these people that, you know, that populate his behalf the people in, in Hollywood Babylon, nobody even knows or remembers anymore. So, that book is was very dated, and what I wanted to do was loosely, as I said, in the same vein, and something more updated, but traversing far more landscapes than anything that Kenneth Anger would do, because he's only going to be talking about uh, scandals and sex stories and this kind of tabloidy stuff. You're not going to get anything like what I talk about in my book, so it's a lot more depth. You know, I'm I'm going into renaissance ideas of uh, the masked ball and how this plays into eyes wide shut. And I'm going to go, you know, we, we, we talked about that about six months ago. I'm going to go into the history of Laurel Canyon and, you know, based on Dave McGowan's work and ritual murders like black Dahlia and all this kind of stuff. So I just tried to take it to a whole other level in this very, fringe very niche market of conspiracy film analysis and <laughs> there's not a lot of people that do that that is very true before we go more in depth into some of these films and start breaking down some of these ideas you open up the book with i mean it's really a really a fascinating quote by orson wells talking about filmmaking essentially as a ritual and I guess my question is, how are we supposed to take that quote? Is it a literal quote? Is filmmaking a form of ritual to make some type of reality manifest itself? Or how do we take this quote about filmmaking as a ritual? Well, it, in the case of Orson Welles, I think if you watch his famous documentary, mockumentary, F or Fake, you know, he plays a magician in that and he tells you that he's faking you out so i i think in his mind he probably viewed it as the wizard of uh, wizard of oz sort of scenario the guy the man behind the curtain this kind of stuff and he sees himself in the role of a trickster Uh, so i don't i mean i'm not an expert on orson wells i know that he you know obviously had some connections to the deep state with the uh war of the world psychological operation and all that and also think he you know, probably really did make 
some oligarchs mad like William Randolph Hearst. Citizen Kane is parroting him. And so I think he really probably pissed that guy off. He definitely had some career struggles after that. Uh, But my guess would be that Orson Welles probably took it in a very tongue-in-cheek sense and that Orson Welles probably, I don't have any evidence that he was like a Kabbalist or anything like that, but he could be, I don't know. But uh, I, I take a different view. I take the view that both of those things can be true. You can have a Wizard of Oz type scenario where you have a man behind the curtain and Hollywood functioning kind of like Oz. I, I argue that in the book. And at the same time, uh, you can have a sense in which magic is real in the sense of like the third law of Arthur C. Clarke, that magic is indistinguishable from any sufficiently advanced technology. So, you know, if, if you mean by magic, like you said, sort of uh, causing something to come to be uh, based on your will and intention, then, yeah, yeah I guess that, that exists because fiction has this reflective circular symbiotic relationship between itself and reality where the fiction influences people in the real world. And then the real people in the real world world then reflect back into fiction. So in a platonic sense, I would say uh, quote magic uh, could be considered real. Talking about magic, you mentioned an individual, and I, I apologize if I butcher the name here, but I believe it's Konstantin Stanislavski, and he was yep. the father of uh, method acting, if method I remember. Acting, right. Interestingly enough, in your book, you explained that uh, he was an occult practitioner who was pretty uh, open about uh, mm-hmm. the spiritual nature to his method. Now, a few years back, we all remember, you know, the smash hit at the box office that was The Dark Knight. And mm-hmm. Heath Ledger, everybody mm-hmm. said that his role as the Joker was the one that ultimately broke him. Mm-hmm. Do you see something like that happening? I mean, we hear so many uh, stories when we talk about these things about actors that get that submerge themselves in their role. I mean, Johnny Depp has said that he can't even watch his own movies because, you well, know, yeah, it's, he it's, says he doesn't go to his own premieres yeah. and watch them. Yeah. So is there, in your opinion, are some of these actors, whether willingly or not, tapping into some type of spiritual realm, not necessarily in a positive way? Uh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, as I mentioned a minute ago, Plato has a dialogue called Ion, I-O-N, where Socrates debates this very subject with a bunch of uh, musicians and poets and thinkers. And he basically argues that poets and musicians are lesser on the philosophical importance totem pole because <laughs> they're inspired by the daemon or they're they're inspired by a kind of dionysian madness in, in a way that the the philosopher or the mathematician or the pythagorean is not uh, now granted socrates would say that he's inspired by a daemon as well and it, this is not meaning a demon it just means a, a spirit or god in the generic sense okay but uh that's the the greek word d-a-e M-O-N means that. Does it mean demon? Um, so this is the ancient view of of the arts, uh, of acting. So Stanislavski's method is would find resonance in Platonism. Uh, you also had Renaissance actors and actresses who would try to mimic this uh, methodology. I actually interviewed a girl who was an actress and a model, and I think she did her 
master's or PhD work, I forget what, uh, on the Renaissance method of acting. Uh, so there's a lot of parallels with this. And so Stanislavski didn't just sort of invent this. He was hearkening back to these older ideas of stage and theater, you know, going back to ancient Greece. So now, but one could debate exactly what's going on here. And I'm sure that there's a million different opinions on this, but, you know, and even in ancient Greece, you would have these sort of drug cults and presumably the people who participated in theater were quote inspired under the influence of various narcotics or hallucinogens or whatever. Now this could produce uh, either real alternate, uh, personalities or inspirations or spiritual influences, or if one takes a more quote, rational skeptical approach, it's just a manifestation of uh, madness. And uh, as I said, sort of Dionysian uh, berserk, (laughs) berserkerness, I don't know, making up new words here, but uh, so regardless, that is is the ancient view, right? (laughs) Regardless. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so in that, in that sense, I would say Stanislavski is just hearkening back to that. And if I recall, he was influenced by uh, things like theosophy and things like that. So um, my personal view, I tend to think that there are real alternate personalities and that they, uh, people under the influence uh, and use of drugs and hallucinogens and whatnot, that they actually do receive an influence from what we might call a spiritual realm. So I do believe that's all real. So, but regardless, uh, yes. Simply put, yes. I wanted to ask, you know, how did you initially become interested in philosophy? And secondarily, how do you come to find yourself exploring such esoteric themes, especially as pertains to film and Hollywood? So if you'd like to give an overview, really, of how you got into this. Yes, actually, probably would be a bit of a surprise, I think, for most people who get interested in philosophy. It's because they want to maybe when they're 18, 19, 20, rebel against maybe like a biblical upbringing or some sort of Christian upbringing or fundamentalist upbringing. For me, it was kind of the opposite. I was uh, reading the Bible actually when I was 18, 19, and that that got me interested in philosophy because uh, some of the church groups that I attended back then in my, my younger days were, uh, they were actually pro-philosophy. Uh, so they, wow, they had a very open great. approach to the idea of that beliefs needed to be supported with some kind of argumentation and that it's not rational or reasonable, even for a person who has a religious view to just sort of adopt a view uh, arbitrarily or ad hoc or anything like that. You need, you need to have reasons for your beliefs. And uh, that always seemed uh, sensible, (laughs) sensible to me. So, so when I was about 18 or 19, I just started getting into reading some philosophy and reading some Aristotle and some Plato and then, uh, various things happened in my life that led me to going to the uh, state university. And the, really the only thing that they offered that was anywhere near my, my interest and tastes was just philosophy. So that's what I decided to do was uh, get a philosophy degree. And uh, I was working full time at the time. So it, it took me several years to, to finish the undergrad, I think about seven or eight actually. But at the same time, I had this uh, great job back in my twenties where uh, I could just sit and read all day. So for like 10 years, all I did was read all day. Uh, and then when I got off work or whatever, I'd go to uh, to class. So I wasn't just reading philosophy. I was, I was also reading a lot of 
theology, a lot of comparative religion, religion, and a lot of argumentation from other positions too. So I was very always very open to trying to understand an opponent's position, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's always been the strong point for why I respect and would call myself a philosopher is that your goal is to understand, say, an opponent's position better than the opponent knows it. That's the goal, at least, right? So I was always open to reading atheists. I would read, uh, you know, so-called evil people or whoever. I would read fascists. I would read neo-fascists. I would read liberals. I'd read communists. I'd read Marxists. I'd read anybody. And I think that that's the most sensible way to approach things as a philosopher. And that eventually, you know, just happened to kind of coincide with my interest in things like conspiracies and world government and 9-11 and um, secret societies and Freemasonry. And uh, then I've also always liked movies and doing comedy and so forth. So if you start to realize, uh, like I was about 17 or 18, I started realizing, hey, actually, there's a lot of stuff in movies. It's pretty weird. Uh, it seems to match up at times to reality and then also seems to skew things at times. So Something's going on with Hollywood. I had a suspicion for a long time, but I never could really put my finger on it until, you know, I got much older and I'd been exposed to a lot more, um, a lot more ideas and gotten, you know, a really good grounding in philosophy and, you know, actual literal professional training in philosophy. Uh, And then I think that that kind of just accidentally sort of everything fell into place. And going back to what we were talking about before a little, to what extent do you feel that actors are not merely acting? And I think this is really important because this is something you do focus on, if not explicitly, this is what really you're talking about in your book. You know, to what extent are they not acting, but in actuality doing the thing that they're doing? And um, this, for me, it harks back to um, 2004 when in Harvard, apparently they wanted to carry out this satanic mass and they said they were just acting out a satanic mass. But to me, acting out a satanic mass is to an extent doing a satanic mass. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how does that translate into acting and what can you tell us about how acting blurs into reality? Well, I guess partly it would depend upon the individual actor's view of what they're doing and mm-hmm. how serious what they're doing is. So I've never personally done any method acting. I, I have done a little bit of acting here and there, but uh, I've, I have uh, interviewed people who studied uh, method acting and they claim to take it seriously. So my guess would be that, you know, when you're watching somebody like Jared Leto or uh, Christian Bale, you know, losing significant amounts of weight or gaining significant amounts of weight or Jeremy Irons, uh, you know, trying to literally live this persona, this role day in and day out uh, as their, quote, craft, the acting craft. I would say that those people take it seriously. And there's always this sort of legend about uh, Jack Nicholson telling Heath Ledger to beware of playing the role of the Joker. And I would suggest that that's probably, there's probably some truth to that because you're literally trying to put your mind into a state of 
chaotic evil. I mean, that's really what the Joker represents is just mindless, mindless sort of chaotic evil. And I think Heath Ledger, if I recall, was, was definitely trying to practice method acting in that way in regard to that role. So I would say that those kinds of approaches could, can be very dangerous. And that's actually what Plato was warning against in Ion when he was arguing in that dialogue. Uh, he says, he says, this, this is, people go nuts. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, if you're trying, if you're trying to, so I would say there's a lot of reality and danger there. Um, and, and, and that's actually when it does tie into real occultism, mm-hmm. uh, that would be because a lot of people who get into r- really practicing that stuff, they, they kind of go crazy. I mean, yeah. just look at the character of Crowley himself. I mean, that he ends up basically insane and yeah. a, dr- a drug fiend and, you know, <laughs> like he thinks he's a God and then like, he's like, he's dying and he's on drugs. And, you know, he, so he viewed his life that way, uh, unless one thinks he was just strictly a British secret intelligence agent. And that was all fake. I tend to think he was really, you know, believing at least to some degree what he was doing. And, you know, people, they get into this stuff. Sometimes they end up going crazy. And that's Plato saw that same tendency amongst actors because, and I mean, it's no different than this sort of hedonistic approach of the rock star. You know what I mean? I'm not, right. now I, I think that, probably some of these rock stars uh, are killed uh, or the, the deaths are staged to sell records or something like that. I think that's all possible. But I also think that you just have people living a totally out of control, dissolute lifestyle and they're on drugs and you know, you're going to die young if you live that way. Right. And I've seen people die young from drugs. So it's very reasonable to presume that. Tell the folks at home about, you know, and I found this really interesting. Uh, Lookout Mountain Film Studio. That place, I heard a bit about it before, and it pops up in your book. Just briefly, I'll say this much, that it was used by the the U.S. Air Force. It was a top-secret film studio during the 40s and the 60s. And now, interestingly enough, you just mentioned him, Jared Leto owns this place. Why don't you tell people a little bit about that? Because this um, connection... It's going to be very crucial to your book and how we interpret some of these films. So why don't you tell people a little bit about Lookout Mountain Film Studios and and why that is relevant to what we're going to be talking about tonight? Well, the last time that you had me on, I had just gone to it. Oh, really? Yeah, literally, we drove to L.A. and Uh we went to Hollywood. We drove up Wonderland, excuse me, up Mulholland Drive to Mm -hmm. Wonderland Avenue. And I took a picture, uh, actually two or three pictures from the outside of it. Obviously, uh, Jared Leto didn't let me in. I guess he was <laughs> he was being the, the new Joker. So here, right. here we are back to the Joker again <laughs> in Suicide Squad. But uh, from the outside, from a little skinny road there, you can see memorabilia plaques and, and signs that still designate it as property of the Air Force. So that's wow. all true. Wow. Uh, it's it's mainstream news. It's but I want. I was just you know we were in the area and I wanted to go check it out for my for my with my own eyes. And yeah, that's all true. Um, I had most of the book written and I wasn't aware of this. And then I had my buddies uh, Chris and John, who do Hoaxbusters, kind of clued me into this. And uh, it was a, about a year ago, and I read uh, 
Dave McGowan's book and, and Dave, I think was the first researcher to really clue into this because he watched, I think it's uh, from Trinity to Trinity and beyond or whatever that documentary is that talks about the uh, supposed atomic footage and the atomic footage was all collated and edited and put together at Lookout Mountain Studios. So, you know, the question arises, why does the Air Force need its own private film studios when, you know, they, they could have conceivably, uh, if it's this was just, uh, if the story about the atomic bombs and all that is is what we're told, uh, you know, why do you, why do you need all this uh, super secret giant film studio? And that's what it was. Like they could have just filmed it and put it out, right? I mean, why right. does it all need to be processed with all these Hollywood people? Uh, when the military has plenty of capable people on their own that could have done it. Well, that's because there's probably a much greater connection between Hollywood and the Pentagon than most of us are aware. And that's kind of one of the big uh, theses I have in the book is that there's a much closer relationship between the Pentagon and the, the CIA and the intelligence agencies and all that than merely some liaison office, right? I mean, everybody's kind of clued into, if you're not aware of it, all the military branches have a, quote, liaison office with Hollywood. And this is part and parcel of things like, you know, if Michael Bay wants to put a battleship in a movie, he's going to go talk to the Navy liaison, right? And they're going to hash this out or whatever. And so the Hollywood wants to do a thing about the CIA, well, they're going to go talk to Milt Bearden or Chase Brandon, who are these CIA consultants to Hollywood, or maybe Robert Bayer. But I think it goes deeper than that. And I think that when we look back to things that somebody like Dave McGowan has clued into and focused on, like Lookout Mountain, what you see is that a lot of the top Hollywood people were mysteriously <laughs> accessing and going to and filming things uh, at this secret Air Force studio People like Walt Disney, Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, Marilyn Monroe, a lot of these A-listers from, you know, fifties and sixties. Why are, why is this happening? And we don't have all the answers. We don't know exactly everything that was going on. It was all classified, but I think it's just suggestive. It's a piece of evidence that's suggestive within a larger narrative that I argue for in my book that basically, you know, as the last chapter says, there's kind of a dark marriage between the Hollywood, Hollywood and the CIA. Correct. Jay, why don't we start moving into the arena of films? And um, obviously, as you mentioned, the book opens with one of the uh, the masters of cinema, if I'm free to use the term, and that's uh, obviously Stanley Kubrick. We dedicated a whole show to Eyes Wide Shut, and you could probably talk a lot more just on that movie alone. But I want to <laughs> talk about another movie that really got a lot of people's you know, wheels turning a bit, and that's The Shining. Uh, yeah. there's people that have speculated that this was some type of admission about Kubrick and the lunar landing and faking that footage. And mind you, I, part of me wants to believe it, but I'm waiting for something with a little bit more meat to really go out on the limb and say that that happened. But in your book, you include an interesting photograph. And this is just a small, uh, small evidence of the interesting circles that Kubrick moved in. Um, there's a photograph in which he's walking next to Arthur C. Clarke, who, you know, he, he was an astronomer of a very bright individual. And I believe in the book, you call him an illuminist. And uh, he's also walking alongside NASA Administrator George Mueller. 
So Kubrick had access to some very powerful people, and I can see how that can feed into the conspiracy of Kubrick being involved in the moon landing. However, when you tackle The Shining in your book, you really start peeling back the layers and you tap on something that I guess I had toyed with the idea before, but I had not connected the two. And that's the the idea that Kubrick is actually telling us the history of the U.S. We see a lot of Native American imagery, you know, mixed in with, you know, the, the modern man and, you know, the industrialized world. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I've, you know, and this is just my opinion, but I've always wondered, you hear so many stories about Native American land and some weird occurrences that happen in Native American land. And I've always wondered, could it be that maybe, you know, as their land was being taken away, was this land being uh, almost cursed or something? You know, we have the case, for example, of Skinwalker Ranch, where the legends of the natives go way back to weird things happening. So how do you see The Shining? Can you explain people at home just briefly a little bit of how it might not just be or it might not be at all about faking the lunar landing, but it could be about something a little bit closer to home, if you will. Yeah, well, it's, as everybody knows, you know, Stephen King's story. So there's quite often in Stephen King stories that Native American ghost tale type stuff, right? So, I mean, uh, that I don't think that's uh, anything revolutionary. That's, I think, pretty obvious in Stephen King's stuff. And... I think that the indigenous animistic spiritualism is pretty much in the background of the whole movie and that that's what we're dealing with on multiple levels. So the Overlook Hotel and its proprietor, the Stuart Ullman guy or whatever his name is, he, he, he represents that uh, American managerial corporate class. Uh, the, maybe the bourgeoisie and he describes America as this kind or the, excuse me, the overlook hotel as this resting place for the jet set and that the elites and the Royals would come and have their orgies and parties there. And so Jack seems to kind of be mystically drawn to this, to this place. And we discover that he is of course, abusing his son Danny and that this has resulted in the, the split of Danny having the alternate personality of what is it? Tony, right? Yeah. 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 And so I, I just always saw it as just kind of a, a ghost story and a story of possession and a, an allegorical critique of American imperialism and American adventurism in terms of foreign policy and bombing other countries, you know, that's, that's kind of what that, that young adventurous generation is what Danny represents. And that's why Jack has these weird lines like, well, Danny, did you finish bombing all the other countries, you know, when he's playing video games. Right. Right. <laughs> so I think these kinds of things are clues and Jack kind of represents that, I don't know, war generation or baby boomer generation or something. And he's very 
psychopathic. He's very, he's very messed up. Maybe he was abused too. He has these sort of homoerotic tendencies. We know he's looking at a Playgirl magazine. And I think that we actually eventually see him uh, sexually abusing Tony. That's, uh, excuse me, Danny. That's, I believe that's hinted at Mm. in the film. Uh, We don't, obviously we don't see that thankfully, but, and I think that you also have this, this mythological aspect to it where the, the lookout maze is very similar to and hearkening to the story of Theseus. And this is, you know, the, the idea of Minos, the King of Crete. He puts Theseus imprisons him in the, uh, the maze and then the Minotaur is going to eat him. And so Jack sort of takes on this persona of the Minotaur and he's going to kill his son. And, and point being that, that, uh, American bourgeois imperialism is willing to sacrifice its children for its own, for its own status in in the so-called elite, because Mm -hmm. that's Jack's whole motivation is that he feels he's been cheated. His family's holding it back. He should have been one of the great writers. He should have been at this, you know, glorious ball with all the aristocrats and, and the oligarchs or whatever. And so that's how I see it. I see it as a big kind of uh, a, just a story of possession. I do think there's references to to mind control, and you know you see posters that say monarch when you when you see the the, the twins and yeah. all, all kinds of stuff like this, which I think is kind of hinting at mind control. And that's not far fetched, uh, given the fact that you've got Kubrick doing a whole movie about MK Ultra. Uh, because, uh, called uh, Clockwork Orange, right? Right, based on the Anthony Burgess novel, and you've got another bo- movie that deals with mind control by Kubrick, uh, Full Metal Jacket. I think it's very likely that we see mind control and alternate personalities and Monarch in this film on purpose, uh, because I tend to believe that when they were doing the MK Ultra studies, Bluebird, Artichoke, Naomi, which, as far as I can tell, are all real. Uh, at least according to John Marx's book, that they really did study the human psyche and, and how to traumatize it and how to fracture it. I believe that's real. Now, I'm not so convinced that the, the CIA is out there running all these couriers and uh, assassins or anything like that. I think that the purpose of studying those things was so that through pop culture, they could traumatize the masses, right? That's much more valuable than Scarlett Johansson running around with a trigger code and killing somebody. That's if you can, if you can cause a billion people to have double think that's much more valuable to a social engineer than Mila Jovovich going in than uh, assassinating somebody. Right. (laughs) So anyway, so I'm, I'm kind of getting off topic, but, uh, but that's what I see it as. I see it as a, 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 a retelling of the myth of America from a different perspective and possession ghost story, all of that. Kubrick as well as uh, David Lynch, they do this a lot and that's playing a lot with the waking dream state. And, you know, I've always wondered, you know, this is, yeah. And this is again, my own personal opinion. And I got to go back to uh, in my mid teens when I, I guess I stumble upon, the, the concept of uh, lucid dreaming for the folks that are, mm-hmm. you know, believe that it's possible. 
And that always fascinated me. I've always felt like it was in this sleep, like, or, you know, waking dream state, if you will, that the veil is the thinnest and we can experience things outside of our everyday reality. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, Kubrick and Lynch both use this quite a lot in their films. Are they just using this as merely vehicles for plot development? Or do you think they are trying to hint at more? Oh, I, I absolutely think that more is going on. Uh, when you go to the origins of surrealism, they're all a bunch of occultists. Uh, now, I'm not saying that that means that every one of them was necessarily evil. But when you look at, say, the art of Man Ray, who is the buddy of George Hodel, who mm-hmm. most people think is probably the Black Dahlia killer. Right. Uh, and then this, you know, this, this guy's running around in all the elite circles of Hollywood in his day. <laughs> if you look at the art of Man Ray, there's a really good book called Exquisite Corpse, uh, which is show, it's a, a dedicated to investigating the Black Dahlia situation from the vantage point of art and particularly analyzing in depth the art of Man Ray. And Man Ray's art is utterly Luciferian and totally anti-human and totally dedicated to bondage, torture, mind control, splitting personalities. That's 100% what his art's about. Very obvious, no question about it. Human sacrifice even. So in that regard, there's somebody who is popular as an artist who... No, surrealism for him is way more than a, a device for art. It's for him, it is a, a a very consciously satanic thing. So it just depends, right, on the person's intention. Um, I don't. I think that a lot of artists or filmmakers find surrealism fascinating because it is kind of fascinating. I mean, yeah. you know, look at look at Salvador Dali's surrealist art. I mean, it's, it's very course. fascinating. Uh, it's dealing with the dream state and, and all this kind of stuff. But I think it was George Hodel himself who said that I was fascinated by the idea of there being no distinction between the waking state and the dream state precisely because it removed all moral obligation. Wow. Right. <laughs> because, yeah. So, and he, even if he wasn't the Black Dahlia killer, he was like guilty of pedophilia and incest. So, I mean, the guy's a total scumbag regardless of whether he actually killed elizabeth short or not so it just depends right i mean it mm-hmm. depends on the uh but you I mean you could see the easy how easily one could step from surrealism into some kind of i don't know idea that like i think carl Jung had this view that everything in your waking everything in your experience is just a manifestation of your psyche and if that's the case then well it doesn't really matter what you do Right, because your base, your mind is basically your own god, and you're you're creating your own reality and all those kind of nonsense. Uh, I don't think that that's true, and I, that's the dangerous part of surrealism. But for others, you know, it could be just merely uh, one artistic creative school or something like that. It definitely seems like there is somewhat of a thin line. Jay, we're going to take a top of the hour break. Uh, if it's all right with you, you mind hanging on the line while we play a couple of songs and then come back in and. Dive back okay. into your book. Sure. Cool. When we return, we're going to talk some more to uh, Jay about his book, Esoteric Hollywood. Man, the, this first hour just flew by. We're going into deep water, so grab the scuba gear. 
We're gonna go. Well, we're talking about David Lynch. You like that one, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> that I was, was saving, pretty good. I, I was saving grab that for the scuba gear. Yeah, I haven't it. heard that one. Yeah. Uh, we're talking David Lynch, so we're gonna go out with this from the uh, Lost Highway soundtrack. This is a Nine Inch Nail track, The Perfect Drug. Talk about mind control and whatnot, right? Great. West of the Rockies coming right back. West of the Rockies with Frank. <laughs> Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we're back to the second hour, West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook, Genevieve Uway on Twitter. If you want to learn how to spell that, go to our website, WOTRradio.com. Follow the show on Twitter at WOTR Radio, also on Instagram and all that good stuff. Don't forget to sign up for our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and also our YouTube channel where we post our shows as well as some video interviews when we get the chance to catch up with some of our guests in person. We like to grab a little quick video interview with them. So you can find that on there. Our guest tonight is Jay Dyer of Jay's Analysis. Definitely follow him on Twitter if you want to stay up to date with uh, all the craziness. Uh, that's at J, J A Y, at J underscore D zero zero seven on Twitter and check out his website, jaysanalysis.com. Mm-hmm. Man, and you need to get this book. Esoteric I, I Hollywood. I already got it. You already got one. Yeah. <laughs> We're fighting over this copy. Esoteric Hollywood, Sex, Cults, and Symbols in Film by Mr. Dyer, who is our guest tonight. You can pick it up on Amazon. Uh, and I believe, I believe that you can pick a signed copy on, on, uh, on Jay's website. Is that correct, Jay? If they order from your website, I believe they can get a signed copy of your book, right? Yeah, please. Please don't get it from Amazon. <laughs> don't get it. Okay. Forget I say get it from Amazon. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, Amazon's just not that great for authors, but, uh, yeah, if you get it from me from the website, I'll send, I'll just send you a signed copy. So it's not yeah. that much more. Cool. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us tonight and talk about all this stuff. Let me ask you something, because uh, before the break, you were talking about, well, we were talking about The Shining and mm-hmm. and rituals and whatnot. And we were watching Rosemary's Baby last night. You know, that's such mm-hmm. a great family movie, right? You get the kids and watch that thing. Yep. Get your popcorn <laughs> out. And, but, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, it's funny because... Talking about The Shining, and you know, I was just thinking about this during the break. You mentioned how Jack Nicholson's character in The Shining was kind of this bitter individual that felt like fame eluded him. He he felt like he deserved to be this successful, famous writer. He wanted right. more. Yeah. In in Rosemary's Baby, we see um, maybe maybe not such a bitter individual, but we see. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, I forget the name of the character and the actor at the moment, but the. Uh, uh, one of the well. protagonists, the, the male counterpart, if you will, uh, he was an actor and he joined this cult, did this ritual to get ahead in his career. And that's two movies from two different directors. There are kind of alluding to this underground network where in order to get ahead, you got to do some really 
interesting Dodgy. Yeah, <laughs> activities. Again, do you think they're trying to tell us something in a not-so-subtle way of how things operate in the entertainment industry? Yes, and a, a large portion of that kind of stuff is blackmail. So if you, I, I did a fairly popular podcast on the subject of Rosemary's Baby um, maybe two months ago. And I think had about 15 or 20,000 plays. So pretty good for a podcast. And wow. if you want to get my full analysis, you can check that out uh, either at the speaker page or at the YouTube page. Um, so what I go into there is, yes, we actually do. We, we do cover that point. The fact that I think his name is Casavides. His, his uh, desire was to be an A-lister. And that's what he finally got through. You know, pretty much doing whatever the, the cult told them to do yeah. because they actually had a lot of power. And what, and that includes, by the way, murder uh, in, in this Rosemary's baby story. They kill the girl uh, who falls out of the window or whatever at the beginning. That yeah. was actually a murder. So, yes, that I do think goes on, especially when the establishment has their fingers in a lot of different cults and organizations and to rise up in the ranks of those things, they want to have compromising information on you to ensure that you will go along. And that's the big, a big part of it. That's what the kind of the role of the intelligence agencies and different uh, private intelligence agencies, and PIs and surveillance and, yeah. you know, with the Franklin cover up or th those kinds of stories we read about people like Craig Spence and, and these characters who would wire the parties for, for orgy blackmail material because that's worth a lot of money so yeah that goes on and the the cults uh, are really i think kind of the medium by which this kind of stuff goes down that's where this stuff goes down basically is what i'm trying to say and yes you will get indications of that in films uh, I think uh, I, I do have an analysis. It didn't make it into the book. It'll be in probably in part two, but I did do an analysis of uh, Rosemary's, uh, not Rosemary's, uh, Roman Polanski's uh, Ninth Gate. In that, if you recall, Johnny Depp's kind of playing this book hunting dude who goes across the globe trying to track down the secrets of this uh, missing book that supposed this this mysterious book that supposedly the devil wrote, uh, and he gets involved in a cult and. The cult's kind of a bunch of goofballs, and it, there's a scene that's very reminiscent of Eyes Wide Shut, where they're kind of he kind of stumbles into this black mass sex magic ritual, yeah. very, very, very similar to Eyes Wide Shut. Um, so, yeah, I, don't, I, I think that uh, Roman Polanski is telling us what's going on. In fact, Roman Polanski, you know, was uh, rumored to be running in these circles. You know, he doesn't mm -hmm. live in the U.S. precisely because he was charged with uh, you know, sex underage or something yeah. back in the seventies. So, so that does go on. And uh, I think these movies are absolutely describing that phenomenon. Yeah. I'm always interested to think about like how people's history plays into their arts. And mm -hmm. I, I recall watching a, a very intriguing documentary about um, Roman Polanski's life. It was a um, biographical documentary. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it was called. But, you know, it, it walks you through his life and how he literally lived through World War II. 
And mm-hmm. obviously that's quite traumatizing. And it reminded me of um, when James Elroy, um, the writer of Black Dahlia, LA Confidential, and, you know, a right. lot of LA noir novels. I remember when, when he came to our university back in Cambridge in England and he gave a talk and he was talking about, you know, his life and growing up and his mom and he literally lived through his mother being raped and murdered. And this is the guy that goes on to write novels such as The Black Dahlia and L.A. Confidential. And you have Roman Polonsky on the other side who lived through his family dying in World War II. And mm-hmm. this is the art he comes out with. Uh, what do you have to say about that and how people's backgrounds shape what, you know, they create? Well, I'm not trying to be an asshole, but I mean, I think that's kind of like a no-brainer. I think that everybody who's an artist is going to be informed by their back, their background. So mm-hmm. I'm not really sure what to say about that other than that it's just kind of obvious and a natural process for especially writers. Writers are going to draw from their own experience. For example, I wrote this book. It's because I love movies and I like watching a lot of movies. And I also like uh, conspiracies and geopolitics. Right? So that's you write about what you know and what you've experienced. I mean, I guess you could argue that these guys have been exposed to the dark side a lot. And so they're probably going to reflect that um, attempt to grapple with the human dark side and the existence of evil and all that in their artwork. And that could mean either their belief that they're controlling evil or that Mm -hmm. they're doing a ritual or that they're trying to maybe in their own mind establish whether evil's you know real or not or i you know i don't know i'm I'm not uh not actually that well studied on i've seen a lot of roman polanski's movies even back to like the vampire ones and his older obscure stuff his foreign stuff uh so i mean i'm very familiar with his canon of films as to him personally i don't know that much about his his story we appreciate your answer on that, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, just I'm, yeah. I'm just always intrigued, you know, like you got to think about people's backgrounds and how they really shape what they're yeah. projecting. I mean, I guess it makes them more prone. Yes, more yeah, prone and to, it's always interesting yeah. to see like how it it ties in. Yeah, well, I mean, it makes me wonder, and I'm just thinking out loud, if maybe the the people behind the scenes maybe saw a young Roman Polanski, and they're like, hey, this guy's pretty messed up. We could totally manipulate him or something. You know, we can convince him to join our little group or whatever. Uh, but again, that's just pure speculation. Jay, let's get back into the book, because here, this movie was like a rite of passage for me. And actually, to be fair, there were two movies that I watched almost simultaneously. And they were they were like my dark side of the moon moment, if you will. One was 2001 Space Odyssey, but we already talked about Kubrick. And honestly, that movie alone could be another show in and of itself. But I want to talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind because this movie was like a worldwide uh, hit. My dad played this movie for me when I was very, very young. I think too young to understand, but I guess he felt like he, he really had to show me, right? Like it was just one of those movies you, you, you've you seen. And mm-hmm. the way my dad interpreted the movie, it, it was in a very, you know, optimistic type of way, which was 
aliens or, or extraterrestrials or these beings from, from elsewhere. They want to have a peaceful relationship with us. And obviously, you know, Spielberg is, it's, uh, you know, there's a reason why the man is the legend that he is as far as filmmaking is concerned. And, you know, this movie had it all. It had black ops, conspiracies, secret mm -hmm. government bases, aliens, UFOs, the whole, everything. It was everything you right. want in a sci-fi movie. But what was the message? Was it a message of hope? Was this some type of, uh, and I'm going to use the, the term uh, synchronicity. Were, were we being groomed and prepared for something? I mean, a lot of people speculated that this movie was almost a way for for them, them being the government or, you know, the powers that be, to prepare us psychologically for the reality that we are, quote unquote, not alone. Was the message a positive one in that movie or how did you process the information that we were given there? Well, I guess determining whether it's a positive message uh, would depend on what one be believes about extraterrestrials and i personally don't believe in extraterrestrials so in that regard i don't see the message of close encounters as positive i think from spielberg's perspective because he apparently does or professes to believe you know in aliens and so forth that what he wanted to do was i think he's kind of kicking off the modern obsession with them. I and obviously there, there's always been alien movies, but I mean, this one is a, was a pretty big blockbuster. It kind of wowed people at the time, you know, special effects wise. And, uh, given that it, 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 was, it is a good story. Um, I still think it's a good movie, even though I don't, I don't agree with the, uh, what I think is the message. I think right. the, the darkest part of it is the fact that, uh, the, overlords uh, take your family members and your children uh, and they appear to do some sort of genetic modification and then and then they give them back to you years later or something right uh, yeah. so yeah I, I mean i don't believe that the elite are using aliens to breed people or anything like that uh, i do think that if you read this as a kind of allegory what i usually talk about in terms of aliens is that i think that the psychopathic ruling class tends to kind of view themselves as the way these movies present aliens. They're kind of this cold calculating scientifically advanced quote, different race. And they will, they have no qualms about experimenting on people. This is what we always hear about aliens, right? Well, who is actually doing that? Well, we know that for, the last hundred years, the science quote scientific establishment and those who believe in scientism, they don't have any qualms about scientifically experimenting on humans. It's even been declassified many times. So uh, that's what I view it as is uh, if you want to understand it, it's uh, the oligarchs, the scientific technocrats. They're the ones that run the deep state. They're the ones that for lack of a better term are quote alien uh, and, you know, that's why you see the Denver airport come up or the, the coordinates of the Denver airport come right. up roughly. That's why you see NORAD, Cheyenne Mountain reference, Lockheed Martin. I mean, this is the deep state, right? This is the military industrial complex. And you even got characters out of the deep state that the Francois Truffaut character is based on. He's supposed to be Jacques Vallée. The yeah. famous, the famous, uh, you know, UFO researcher and uh, 
DARPA or whatever he worked for. He worked for Stanford Research and uh, worked on the internet. So that's the, the the background to to this. And I don't think that it's uh, ET that's visiting us. I think that it's the establishment that uses humanity as an experiment and that basically oh what's that line from the box right the richard kelly movie uh, you are the experiment uh, i think that richard kelly was hinting at that point I, I did an analysis of the box it didn't actually make it into the book but you can find that at jay's analysis and richard kelly's the guy that did uh, donnie darko by the way southland mm-hmm. tales uh and so the box is a tribute to kubrick in a way and the whole point of that movie is that we're all a uh, sociological scientific experiment for the scientific scientistic class. And I think that that's kind of what Spielberg's message is here. But Spielberg also wants it to have a kind of, as you said, yes, a synchro mystic message to it. And that's why Roy, the, the drive Richard Dreyfuss character, he, he goes to this almost religious conversion. Yeah. Right? I mean, he's totally changed by his experiences of uh, synchronicity. Uh, and it seems to all be kind of engineered by these, quote, aliens. You know, it's funny because, as, and you mentioned that in your book as well, that you're not a believer in the alien phenomena as we come to know it. And you actually uh, make a, an interesting uh, claim about the Roswell incident that I do want to uh, ask you to maybe elaborate a little bit more and you believe that Roswell was just a, a disinformation campaign. On what do you base this idea? Right. Well, the first thing I would say is that the images carting around those gigantic chunks of plastic and metal are goofy and ridiculous. They mm-hmm. look like a B-movie set. Uh, secondly, I would say that when you look into the history of the MJ-12 document uh, and the deep state what you find is that a lot of the people who are in the background are all military intelligence and they work in psyops and all this kind of stuff and the people who work in military intelligence and psyops are the first people that you should not believe when they tell you something right Right. uh the first thing the 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 job of the spy and the psyop officer and the intelligence spokesperson or whatever is to lie that's their number one job uh, and to master the art of lying. And this is what, this is just basic military principle. So that those two things, number one, are the reasons why I would not believe them. And then when you actually start to look into the people who really kick off the alien, quote unquote, abduction phenomenon, characters like Mel Adamski, these people are, are not trustworthy. And in fact, you start to find out that uh, some of their stories actually match up to the science to science fiction novels of their day. So I, I don't believe that that makes, I think that is very discrediting. And I think that the extraterrestrial mythology is very useful to the deep state as a kind of distraction, as a cover. It covers up for all kinds of things. But for example, actual research and development in terms of aerospace technology is covered up through alien gobbledygook and smokescreen nonsense. Um, now I do believe that there are, uh, fallen angels. I mm-hmm. do think that those kinds of things do exist, uh, but I don't think they're like zooming around and, uh, you know, space brothers are visiting us or anything like that. I think that, um, if there's any kind of contact in that regard, it does come through, the use of hallucinogens or through uh, religious 
ceremonies, perhaps, or through uh, ascetic practices, perhaps. I think those are the kinds of means by which people think that they're uh, contacting entities or beings. And in fact, I tend to believe that the deep state has fostered the phenomena of uh, aliens and people believing that they're abducted precisely to promote the mythology of aliens. I think that they want us to believe the Prometheus-type story that we are created by uh, alien engineers. And I I suspect that when you look at MK, I can't prove this, but this is my theory. When you look at MKUltra and the similarities between MKUltra and ritual abuse, and then when you look at the claims of the people who are, quote, abductees, it looks to me like uh, these people, if if their stories are true and not just made up wholesale, if their stories are true, then they have been uh, a part of some sort of government experiment and that this then reflects back and, and perpetuates and propagates the mythology of the abduction into the popular culture. It's funny that you mentioned that because, man, it must have been around 97, 98. It was like the early days of the Internet and... I came across this interesting article from uh, a good friend. Well, he's a good friend of mine now, Ron Patton, who works up there with Clyde mm-hmm. on Ground Zero. He wrote this yeah. amazing article called uh, Aliens in Demons Clothing. And up until that point, I had never really, you know, connected the two or, you know, thought about the possibility that this could be true. And fast forward sometime later, I found uh, the book Passport to Magonia by, by Jack Ballet. And uh, he basically said the, the same thing, you know, that when you look at, and I think you included in your book as well, that when you look at any time these uh, quote unquote aliens make an appearance, a lot of paranormal phenomena happens, you know, what some people would describe as haunting, you know, like things will go on off their own or move on their own or things of that nature. And him and his book, Passport to Magonia, proposed, and I can't remember when that book came out, it must have been like 60s, 70s, he proposed that these are not extraterrestrial beings, but they're like interdimensional beings. Would you say yeah, that you... Yeah, I, I, would, I don't necessarily have a problem with that view, mm-hmm. but I also, I don't, I think that Jacques Vallée is somewhat dubious just because of his deep state connections. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also somebody that we can't fully okay. believe simply because... Again, the people who come out of the deep state are, unfortunately, the most unreliable. Mm-hmm. I see. Let me move on to one of the words in the title of your book is cults. We already talked about sex and, and some of the symbology, but something about cults that I think people are familiar with, mainly because of a fairly popular show, I think, that has garnered a lot of buzz is this mm-hmm. new Scientology show by uh, Leah Remini, Remini. called mm-hmm. uh, Scientology in the Aftermath. And that has been called a Hollywood cult. Some of the members are uh, John Travolta and Tom Cruise, uh, Juliette Lewis. I mean, it's a pretty interesting uh, list of people. What do you make of Scientology? I mean, L. Ron Hover was an interesting guy. And, you know, he wrote... Uh, a ton of books and this, you know, they call themselves a religion. I think most of us would call them cults without any hesitation. How are they so uh, rooted in the entertainment industry? And do you see them as 
a group that has any type of pull in the entertainment industry? Or do you think that the cults that you refer to in your book go deeper than that? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you could, you could, uh, easily decode the situation with L. Ron Hubbard by just looking at his background in terms of, uh, Scientology or excuse me, in terms of uh, Crowley. And, uh, when he graduates from his Crowleyan phase, he goes and starts his own religion, which mm -hmm. is what Gerald Gardner did, which is what other individuals who were in the Crowleyan nexus did is that, uh, it kind of becomes a college for starting your own religion, becoming your own cult leader. So that's what I view that as. And, uh, Hubbard had uh, deep state connections and that's, quite clearly, I would say, why his organization uh, currently has uh, such influence and wealth uh, is that it's it's one of the many means by which you can show, uh, you know, the, the kinds of connections that I outline in my book. Like, for example, James Cameron and Ridley Scott having a close connection to sitting on the board of NASA, for example, mm -hmm. especially with James Cameron. So what does that show? Well, the, NASA is an Air Force institution, and there they are directly working in tandem with two big Hollywood guys. So same thing with this strange uh, Navy, military, CIA cult. Oh, it just happens to involve all of these high-level uh, Hollywood people. So I, again, I don't think it's accidental. It just, uh, just speaks to the, the thesis of the book. Which that in itself is not even that controversial. That should be pretty pretty well known by now, I guess. Even if you've seen the documentary, going clear. I mean, that pretty much pretty much bears all that out. Yeah, you know, living here in L.A. and driving around, it's uh, you really. I mean, you really can't escape Scientology. <laughs> they have these huge uh, properties here. I mean, they have one of the, the one of a little street named after L. Ron Hubbard. They have people. Throwing flyers at oh, yeah, you and like, like if you're walking down the street, they'll, yeah. With, yeah, no. no, they're 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 pretty dedicated. I guess they're would pretty be the, hands the word. on. <laughs> <laughs> but another character that we have discussed on this show, and whom I'm morbidly fascinated with, because I feel that he holds a, a major key as to why the entertainment industry, if you will, might be in the state that it's in, and that is uh, Jack Parsons, who you also mentioned on the book. People can check out a, a really fascinating in interview uh, that we did on the subject of Jack Parsons and his work. He was intimately related to uh, L. Ron Hubbard and a friend of mine who wrote this book called uh, Devil's Gate. He was being inter interviewed for a TV program. And he said something really interesting that I want to run by you, uh, Jay, and, and get your opinion on. I, uh -huh. I believe you're familiar with the uh, Babylon working ritual that Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard did. And if folks are not hip to that, definitely Google it. Believe me, we're not making this stuff up. It's going to sound outrageous, but we're not making this stuff up. Uh, it was a pretty elaborate ritual. I believe it, it was carried out over uh, a few months. And F.J. Lennon, who wrote this book, Devil's Gate, in an interview, he said that uh, he felt that this ritual, this Babylon working ritual, did open a portal and um, it was basically the beginning of the end, I guess. And, and I'm paraphrasing poorly, I, I will admit. But the gist of it was that opening this portal here in, in Southern California, you know, in Pasadena, 
that's where, you know, the spirit of Babylon came in. And this is why we have this kind of uh, occult culture in the entertainment industry. Obviously, as you mentioned, you know, L. Ron Hubbard went on to start his own religion. Uh, so many uh, bands and, and famous people were influenced by Crowley, who was also in communications with Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard. So do you think that possibly Jack Parsons, L. Ron Hubbard, Crowley, this ritual is the reason why we have, as you yeah, labeled it in your book, an esoteric Hollywood? No, I mean... You know, you could, again, you could look at uh, Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon to see that uh, the the Babylonian aspects of Hollywood uh, precede Anger, or excuse me, uh, Crowley and uh, Parsons. And you could also look at German Expressionism, as I cover in the Hitchcock chapter, which was self-consciously satanic as well. And then that, that would later influence uh, Hollywood. Uh, directors such as Hitchcock. So, I mean, or, well, I guess he's British, but Hitchcock obviously influenced a lot of American directors. So, yeah. I mean, you can also read uh, Kieran Connolly's book, Dark History of Hollywood, where he outlines some of the, the same material, but more from a kind of scandal tabloid type perspective that I talk about, whereas I talk about more of the esoteric stuff. But, but no, I, I don't think that the ritual itself is the cause of some sort of uh, Babylonian gate opening or something mm -hmm. like that. Because again, I mean, all this stuff was already in Hollywood prior to them. And uh, if you look at the way that they read the book of revelation or the quote apocalypse, Crowley mm -hmm. thought that you could reinterpret this whole text to be some kind of Gnostic uh, magic ritual. Uh, but, and I've actually done textual studies for many years on, the Apocalypse, Book of Revelation, and that's just not what that book is. John's writing a book to seven churches in his day about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. So I think that's what that book is about. It's not about um, uh, Aleister Crowley and Jack Parsons having okay. sex with their his mom and <laughs> opening, up, opening up dimensional portals. Gotcha. Now, yeah. they might have been all tripped out on acid and thought that or something, but that doesn't mean that it's so, in my view. I always found that to be kind of like an unholy trinity of sorts. Crowley, Parsons, mm -hmm. and Hubbard. It's like, how did those three got together? <laughs> you know, that, that's... Well, he would, he would argue that about the women, right? Like mm -hmm. Marjorie Cameron or whoever, that that's supposed to be the Scarlet Woman. Right, and then right. One of them is going to be the Beast, and they're going to like create the unholy trinity and all this nonsense. But I mean, if they had given birth to like the antichrist or something, then I mean, he would already be like, what, like 60. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the geriatric antichrist is going to like, <laughs> he, he slept on that apocalypse. That's for sure. Uh, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to sit on a giant golden wheelchair. That would be great. Roll the world. <laughs> Jay, uh, we're, we're on the home stretch. Uh, let me ask you this because I feel, and I'm going to take a, a bit of a liberty here, and I feel like we're entering a new age of entertainment. And I'll <laughs> clarify what I'm trying to say by that. A huge hit last year was Stranger Things, the, the original series from Netflix. Yes, actually, I, by the way, I did an analysis of that that went viral. So, yes, you can find that at Jay's analysis. Very cool. Check that out, jasonalysis.com. What I want to ask you is the reason why I call it a new age of entertainment is because the way this show was put together 
was basically more or less through an algorithm, right? Like Netflix looked at viewing patterns of their subscribers. They had all this data and more or less, you know, granted, it's not so simple, right? But more or less, a computer told them everything from what the logo should look like to what the storyline should include. And it, it was a hit. People loved it. Everyone loved it. You know, one of the things that I think the reason why Spielberg movies are so popular is because they're multi-generational, right? You have characters that kids can uh -huh. relate to. They, you have characters that like the older folks can relate to. And you have characters that, you know, the baby boomer generation can relate to. And this formula has worked for him every time. And I see a lot of that in Stranger Things. But to me, what's fascinating in a way is that this was all done using just data. And they crafted more or less the perfect story because, well, hey, you know, how many people watched it on the first week? It was like in the millions. So as we enter this age of computers and algorithms, what can we expect from Hollywood? Uh, are these stories going to continue to be these little windows into what's really going on or are they going to become bigger propaganda machines? Are they going to be brainwashing vehicles for the masses? How, oh, yeah. how Absolutely. is this going to uh, uh, affect how we are entertained from here on out? Yeah. The net Netflix CEO did a interview. This was uh, in an article a few weeks ago. You can find it on Google somewhere. I forget where it was, but uh, he was saying basically that the future of entertainment is, combination of virtual reality and pharmaceutical enhancement. Wow. So you will literally wow, be taking yes. <laughs> uh, some sort of Soma right out of Brave New World yeah, exactly. as you put your VR headset on. So, <laughs> uh, and that's interesting. Yeah. So they, they will probably combine, um, you know, through AI and different algorithms, uh, these sort of concocted plots and they will absolutely have uh, propaganda and social engineering embedded in them because that has been going on since the beginning of the camera and mm -hmm. film. So all they've done is perfect that technique. And uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly what we can expect in the near future. I mean, there's always going to be, you know, the, the full, full length feature film that's not going away. Mm -hmm. um, just like radio didn't go away when, you know, film came about right so you know books are still around books haven't completely gone away so i don't think these any of these things are totally going to disappear but i think they would definitely they would definitely like to i just don't know how easy or successful that could be i mean you know you have fahrenheit 451 and yeah. these different stories that have predicted the end of books and um yeah people I mean, love books uh, yeah. too much i'm sorry but i they think do. so yeah yeah so it could be a thing though, where they maybe if they if they dumb down a giant section of the population who who will only be kind of entranced by their VR sets and their mm -hmm. soma or whatever, and then you'll have like another sort of maybe an elite group or something like that, or the bourgeoisie or something. Maybe that they have enough uh, money to afford books or something. I don't know what's going to happen, but yeah. but I mean they would definitely like to get everybody into that matrix for sure. The mm -hmm. pod, right? They, they, right. They, they promote this kind of stuff of getting in these pods and you know, basically like the Matrix. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. Pretty yeah, much. Pretty much. Let me ask you this as we wind down. How should we view guys like, you know, Kubrick or uh, David Lynch 
who give us, like I said, this peek behind the curtain in a way. Are they, should we view them as prophets warning us of what's going on? Are they trying to maybe lessen their guilt that they may be part of some of these occult groups and practices? How do you view directors such as these and the work that they put out? Well, I try to avoid implicating and judging people's motives because mm-hmm. that's very difficult to do. So a lot of people ask me what was Kubrick's motive. I, I don't really know. Um, you know, you can the interviews where Vivian Kubrick talks about it. She, uh, if I recall, speaks well of her father. So I don't really know. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know anybody in that orbit. Uh, so I've never met any of these directors or talked to them. So, uh, you know, I, I would like to think that, and hope that, you know, there's some good motivation there. But then again, you know, I just don't know. My focus was, you know, film interpretation and film symbolism. It wasn't really a question of, you know, David Lynch's life story or anything like that. So mm-hmm. yeah. I'm, I'm just interested in what I can derive from their film presentations. Do you find that you still enjoy watching movies or, you know, as soon as you sit down, does your brain just kind of switch? into that mode and... and uh, Are you basically able to like sit back and relax nowadays watching movies or are you always on analysis mode? Uh, pretty much always in analysis mode and that <laughs> would be because we are... The television show that we're going to do with uh, me and Jay Wiedner has been greenlit. Oh, very cool. Great. Yeah, and so yeah, that's, this that's week exciting. actually... Yeah, this last week actually I've had a couple conversations with a guy who's a... Um, Actually, a two two time Emmy winning director from the Travel Channel. That's really and cool. he's gonna he's gonna be directing the show. So we had to uh, do a couple calls and try to kind of get the show organized. Uh, so we picked, I think, the first fifteen episodes, and we're sketching that out. So basically, what that means is that in any time that I'm watching quote movies uh, for the foreseeable future, you know, it's going to be directed and related to that so you know we're looking at the alien series we're looking at ridley scott we're looking at blade runner we're looking at ai minority report true detective Mm -hmm. you know all these Mm -hmm. kinds of things are kind of what i'm swimming in so has that taken any of the joy of movie watching away from no not at all because it's all it's for me it's always kind of been that way i've always been you still I have, I have a very, very analytical mind, so I'm, I'm okay. usually, okay. you know, playing movie detective. <laughs> very mm-hmm. cool. And yeah. I guess I'd like to finish off with um, what's your favorite movie if you had to pinpoint one, if you can, only if you can, um, as pertains to, you know, all these esoteric themes. Um, mm-hmm. If you had to pick one, what's the one that's up there in terms of out there-ness and weirdness and you just love it honestly i can't i mean i have just sort of favorites in different genres so mm-hmm. you know there's mm-hmm. certain espionage films i really like there's certain sci-fi films i really like uh, you know I, I like most of the directors that i picked in the the book i do like their movies just yeah. solely on an inter- entertainment artistic level if you can set aside, you know, the propaganda or whatever. I, I, I tend to like most of those guys for sure. Um, I like a lot of Terry Gilliam movies. I like, um, yeah, yeah. 12 monkeys a lot. I like, mm-hmm. 
most Hitchcock movies I like. Um, All the weird stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, Kubrick stuff. I mean, it's about half and half. Half of it, it's, it's kind of hard to like. I I can't rewatch Full Metal Jacket. That's a <laughs> very very brutal movie. So right, that's no, not I, like a I favorite. Agree. But like, uh, there are some movies that I just you know I enjoy them. They're not rewatchable yeah. ones. Well, for me, the, yes. passion, the Passion of the Christ was up there for me. It's like, I don't think I can watch that thing all over again. Well, like, uh, I go back to a lot of 80s movies just because they're fun, like Goonies or Star right. Wars or any of that kind of stuff, just because it's fun. Feel the, good movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bond movies are always fun. Um, Let me ask you this. Uh, uh, yeah. We'll have to chat about that yeah. over a beer sometime, um, you know, I, just like movies. Yeah. <laughs> If uh, I mean I don't know if you have kids or not, but uh, if you I do, don't know. okay. If you had uh, children, would you be okay with them watching movies, or would you let them watch movies and then kind of break it down for them? <laughs> uh, you know, I would think I would make um, an informed decision based on what was appropriate mm -hmm. for whatever the age group is. Yeah. So, you know, I do not having kids. <laughs> I can't really <laughs> say, but. It would, yeah, we just have to depend on, you know, yeah. how old they were and what the subject matter was. Yeah, no, I I, I wonder because I, I'm torn in this a lot of times where, you know, I don't have children either. Knock on wood, <laughs> you know, for a long time. <clears throat> but, that's, but uh, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I wonder how I would react because obviously right now I find this, like I said, and I said it numerous times and I'm not, you know, shy about it. I'm morbidly fascinated by all of this. But for the folks at home that have kids, yeah. Well, the question is there, right? Do I want to expose them to this stuff if it's really that bad? Actually, I get uh, an email probably once a week at least from parents asking me these kinds of questions. That's and I don't really feel uh, competent to answer except for the fact that because I don't follow kids stuff. Like I don't really watch any kids programming yeah. or Oh, you don't? Uh, I do it all the time. <laughs> ignore her. Ignore her. I mean, I, th I think uh, I, I, maybe I saw one of the Pixar movies like five years ago. That might have mm -hmm. been the last kid movie or maybe Big Six, I think. One of those Pixars. I saw that one. Mm -hmm. but That was like the first one. So I don't really know what's out there. But what I see in terms of the kid stuff is kind of mind-blowing. Like it's very... Uh, <laughs> yes very bizarre not stuff that i would if i had a kid i would not want them watching it so, yeah. <laughs> so I, I would tend to say that but I, but i don't even know that stuff or follow it to even say so jay we're we're out of time why don't you tell people where they can get your book uh because i'm sure folks will love to get it and definitely with a signed copy that's even mm -hmm. better and uh where they can follow you on social media yeah if you go to jaysanalysis.com no apostrophe you'll see at the top there's a tab to order the book there's also image graphics that you'll see for purchasing a signed copy and uh, a very easy process it's all paypal there you can get them inside and outside the u.s two different paypal tabs um, i can mail them outside the u.s but it does cost a little bit more just to warn you uh, but i also offer talks podcasts lectures and interviews as well at my site for 4.95 a month or for 60 dollars a year Uh, and that covers everything from geopolitics to philosophy to literature to history to the esoteric, you name it. So I, I try to do a 
scholarly approach in audio form as well and uh, branching out and doing more video lately actually so very cool so that's uh, all at jay's analysis and the links for twitter and youtube and facebook and all that are included in every post at jay's analysis so very easy to find anything like that very cool jay what can i say it has been another great show you're always full of very very important and and really mind-opening information i i definitely want to encourage people to check out his website jasonalysis.com get the book believe me it it's money well spent i i almost see it on twitter at J underscore D O O seven. Jay's okay. analysis. Just Google it. You'll find him online anywhere. Yeah. Jay, thank you so much. And we hope to have you back again soon in the future to talk more about the secret language that we find in film. It's, it's been truly, sure. truly fascinating. Anytime. Awesome. Have a great night, Jay. We really appreciate it. That was Jay Dyer. Man. Uh, it was, you know, was I, I enjoyed talking to Jay so much. Yeah. Show. I was literally racking my head before the show. How are we going to fit all of these points no, in two hours? so much to talk um, about. That we tried like to move through them. My mind is so convoluted right now. Yeah. So definitely go and pick up his book, Esoteric Hollywood. The website is jasonalysis.com. I got the reviews on Amazon, if you don't believe me. I mean, people are saying great things about this book. I can attest that it's a very well-written research book so yeah definitely check it out uh so always have engineer frank on twitter west of the rockies on facebook don't forget to uh, follow the show on twitter at wotr radio and uh, sign up on youtube you can subscribe there and uh we're gonna go out with a little uh jay's addiction how's that some jay's addiction to jay's uh, addiction jay's yeah jay's addiction <laughs> which is movies apparently shout out to jay once again jasonalysis.com this is Jane's Addiction. We'll see you next week, guys. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. Bye-bye. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.